The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Hi, everyone. So, CCS, taking CO2 out of the air and pumping it underground to stay, forever. It was meant to be a way to keep burning coal but still reduce emissions, and a way to squeeze more oil out of old wells. To be fair, these things are happening. Projects got built, big ones, but it didn't scale as people once thought it might. What happened? Well, the shale revolution. Coal got nudged out by less emissions-intensive gas-fired power, so we stopped hearing about CCS for a while, at least for power. But it seems like CCS is making a comeback, especially in steel and cement production. The production processes release a lot of CO2 that can be captured and stored, and even used in making concrete. This week on the show, we've got Julia Atwood, head of advanced materials research for BNF, and advanced materials analyst Ryan Anderson, who actually has his PhD in curing cement with CO2 instead of water. They'll walk us through the basics of CCS, where it's at now, and what it would take for it to grow. Our discussion is based on a report titled CCUS, Applications in Oil and Gas, Power, and Industry. BNF users can get this report on BNF.com, the BNF mobile app, and the Bloomberg Terminal. As a reminder, BNF does not provide investment or strategy advice, and you can hear the full disclaimer at the end of the show. I'm Mark Taylor, here with Dana Perkins, and you're listening to Switched On, the BNF podcast. Today on Switched On, uh, there are four of us. We've got Mark. Hi, Dana. Ryan. Hi, Dana. And Julia. Hey, Dana. So we're here today to talk about carbon capture and storage, or rather carbon capture utilization and storage, which are really, I guess, two concepts that are put together. Ryan, as we dig in, can you explain to all of us what CCS is and then a little bit more into what the utilization part is as the add-on? Certainly. CCS, carbon capture and storage. This is where you're taking the CO2 that's coming out of a point source such as a power plant. All that CO2 is compressed, transported to a site where it's injected underground, hundreds or thousands of meters, into most often a saline aquifer. This CO2 hopefully will never leak. So it's supposed to just stay there forever, right? And it kind of turns to rock, I think. Is that right? In some cases, yeah. So theoretically, you're paying for this land in order to just capture something. Well, to capture the emissions, because you don't want the emissions in the air. So we're putting them in the ground. Exactly. And then the U part. Because storing CO2 underground is just a cost, there's no revenue uh, included. Uh, The U part is where your CO2 is sold or used to create products that generate revenue. Most typically, this is currently for enhanced oil recovery. This is where CO2 is pumped into an oil well that's kind of been depleted. It's in its its last legs of production. And the CO2 changes the the oil such that it it enhances production. It can take a well that's producing 500 barrels per day to 5,000 barrels per day. The companies that are interested in CCS as a technology and in developing it, um, what industries and what sorts of companies are we really looking at here? So most of the CCS or CCUS being performed currently is coming from the high concentration industries because they can produce the cheapest CO2. The cheap CO2 is important because uh, they're supplying it to someone who's most likely buying it. No one wants to pay for expensive CO2 when they could pay for cheap CO2. This means that the most high concentration sources of CO2, such as natural gas processing, hydrogen production, ammonia production, ethanol production, all, all these create cheap CO2 that can be sold for EUR. So they want it for advanced oil recovery. Who are the, I mean, who are the other buyers then? Yeah, so there's not a uh, ton of other 
uh, applications that where the CO2 is being stored for the long term. Uh, you're probably familiar with CO2 being used in your beverages to make carbonated uh, soda, but those are all kind of temporary storage of CO2 and that's released later. Industrial carbonates, such as, you know, sodium bicarbonate, uh, baking soda, and fertilizers, such as urea, uh, also temporarily store the CO2. But it depends on what happens later on in that product's lifetime when that CO2 will inevitably be released. There's a few applications except for underground storage where the CO2 will be stored for a long time. So I am not a chemist, and I apologize to anybody who is listening that is, because my question is going to be pretty basic here in that. So cement companies, iron and steel companies, and then chemical companies are all interested in this. Why are they interested in CCUS? So these giant industries, steel, cement, they have some of the largest corporate emissions of all the industries, right? So they have a handful of things they can do to reduce their emissions. CCUS is, in a lot of their eyes, the last lever they're going to be able to pull to actually get to net zero, if that's their goal. So cement companies in general, they produce CO2 through a lot of different processes in their, at their facilities, and they don't really have a ton of options to reduce the emissions from cement. And the cement industry is not going anywhere. You need it it's for basic infrastructure development. So in any kind of corporate emissions targets or global sustainability goals, CCUS is expected to step in to capture some fraction, potentially a very large fraction of the industry's CO2. So here, cement and concrete actually kind of represents a bit of a, a Goldilocks problem in terms of utilization. You have a lot of materials and in industries that are huge, like aggregates, that could soak up a lot of CO2 as a really useful additive. But because they're so cheap and CO2 is not, that doesn't really work. Then you also have the super specialized things like carbon nanotubes that sell for hundreds of thousands of dollars a kilogram. They're totally happy to pay a higher price for CO2, but we're not selling very many of them right now. So concrete really represents this space where they're generating a lot of CO2. They want to get rid of it. They're going to be incentivized to get rid of it by policy. And happy days, they can actually use it at a reasonable cost that fits with what they sell their product for. So that's why there's so much attention being focused on concrete at the moment. It's because they generate it, they use it, and it's going to help make cement greener, which is what a lot of people are starting to ask for. Julia, I love that you brought up policy because my understanding is that CCS is expensive. This is an expensive technology that's still in development, and we need to see some pretty massive cost declines to see wide-scale adoption. So there are places where policy is pushing this forward. Ryan, can you give us a little bit more, or Julia, can you give us a little bit more clarity on where this is thriving from a policy incentive standpoint? Yeah. So in the United States, there's a policy called the 45Q tax credit. This policy pretty much offsets the cost of capturing CO2 for many industries by providing them with a tax credit for all the CO2 they capture. The European Union has their uh, emission trading scheme, the EU ETS, which is practically a cap and trade program where each industry has a certain amount of emissions that they can release and they have to pay for the difference. These prices on emissions or I guess fees are being put back into research for things like CCUS that are spurring its development. But these policies, they're really not as simple as like the production tax credits that we're used to seeing in the energy industry. The 45Q, and Ryan, correct me here if, I, if I'm wrong, but it's a tax liability. And Ryan and I were actually talking the other day that with the oil price shock, so many of these companies are not doing that well. So how do you claim a tax liability if you know, you're not looking at your usual year of revenues? We also mentioned the California standard. That one is tough because that one is specifically saying you have to make me a fuel 
that is going to be lower carbon than what you were selling before. So you have to go through life cycle analyses and you, and that $200 a ton, that's hard to access because that's like the maximum you can get. You have to be, have a really low carbon fuel in order to get there. So it's these policies, they're, they're inching their way bit by bit towards supporting the industry, but there are a lot of technical hurdles and a long way to go. Um, but what's really interesting is what California has said about direct air capture. And I'm going to let Ryan explain that because it's really interesting. So direct air capture is a little bit like magic. You're taking CO2 from the air and pulling it up. Just the air you're breathing is now CO2 free. You know, it's, it's more complicated than that, but it's, uh, it, it doesn't use a point source uh, emission. It literally is just reducing the atmospheric concentration of CO2. Where uh, the California low carbon fuel standard will pay you to reduce the carbon intensity of your fuels that you're producing for their market. If you are anywhere in the world and you're performing direct air capture and storing that CO2 underground, they will pay you. <laughs> They'll pay for that uh, entire cost. So this is the sort of thing where people talk about, OK, well, maybe we'll just start scrubbing our air. If we're really concerned about emissions and climate change and, you know, the 1.5 degree scenario, we just stick these things all over the world and we start scrubbing the air and suddenly problem solved. Yes. <laughs> no, oversimplification. <laughs> but isn't it comforting to know that if we truly, truly screw up, there's still direct air capture? Well, OK, so it, let's say there is still direct air capture and we want to see this come to fruition. Uh, the economics are going to have to be behind it. How do we get there? How do we drive down the cost of CCS or CCUS or whatever you want to call it? How do we make magic happen? Policy, honestly. So the current plans for the largest direct air capture facility in the world are being spurred. This is through Carbon Engineering uh, partnered with Oxy Low Carbon Ventures, a venture arm of Occidental Petroleum to build a 1 million metric ton per year CO2 direct air capture plant. Uh, and that CO2 will be used for EOR, enhanced oil recovery. And that means they're going to get the US 45Q tax credit. They're going to get the most likely the California low carbon fuel standard credit for reducing the carbon density of fuels. All these policies are going to pay for direct air capture. And voila. And voila. Simple as that. One fact that I read in the report that I thought was really interesting is that 51% of CO2 emissions are actually coming from just 4% of companies. So we actually know who the stakeholders are that are going to care pretty deeply about this. Are those companies, are you seeing signs that pretty much of that 4% of companies, are they looking at this pretty closely right now? Or is it something just kind of they're keeping tabs on? Maybe they're listening to this podcast right now trying to decide. The major emitters all have plans for CO2 reductions. For power companies, a lot of them are hoping to move to renewables, but then we get into dispatchability issues. So power with gas or coal, power with CCS may make sense if the policies drive them to needing baseload power source that uh, is low carbon. Steel and cement industries both uh, emit enormous amounts of CO2, and those companies have uh, emissions reductions plan. Each of these is also going to rely on CCUS to some extent. Which applications do you think are most promising? So let's look at this from an emissions lens. Is it cement? Is it the iron and steel side? Is there something else that I'm missing? I think the industry that has the most likely chance of standing on its own is the cement and concrete industry. They can use CO2 at pretty much any cost of capture. They can use CO2 in their products on a potentially very large scale. I'm just kind of sitting here and I'm just thinking back to my old CCS coverage days. And my conclusion when I stopped covering it was, okay, I'll see you later. I don't think this is ever going to work. But having been away from it, people keep coming up to me and saying, hey, we're going to start covering CCS again because it's it's back. CCS is back. And friends from oil companies, they'll call me and say, hey, guess what we're doing? EOR, CCS, it's back. So what I want to get from you guys is whether or not, like, is CCS back? 
what drove the initial development of solar projects. Solar power was not competitive early on, but it was driven by subsidies and, and incentives, right? The same thing is currently driving all carbon capture and the current pipeline of carbon capture projects. Uh, everyone who's going to be capturing CO2 and receiving some kind of benefit from the governments or policies, those will most likely continue to develop for as long as the incentives make the projects uh, economical. But costs are coming down. Every project that builds carbon capture, let's say uh, the Petronova coal-fired power plant in Texas, they've stated that uh, next time they build it, it'll be 20% cheaper on the CapEx front. The same thing was said for a project in Canada. There's a startup called Spante that's using a kind of a new capture technique that says they can cut CapEx in half. So costs are coming down. There will always be some parasitic load on power production. And so it's always going to be more expensive to capture CO2 from power than just generating power without emissions capture. I think the big thing here is CCS always comes up when a very polluting industry is kind of sensing its death. You know, we saw that with a lot of coal. So coal plants were like, oh no, I'm going to get shut down. How do I keep operating? CCS. We're sort of at that point now with a lot of industrial emissions. We're talking more and more about industrial decarbonization and those industries that will be very difficult to abate are like, oh no, I'm about to get regulated, CCS. So that's partly why this is coming up again. I think the reason why it feels like we're sort of two groups of people standing on either side of a chasm, it's like one person is in the present and they're like, I don't know what to do. The other is on the other side and they're like, it's great, this is a low carbon future and I got here with CCS. And the reason why we can't figure out what that bridge is and how you get there is about costs. In order to cross that, in order to build that bridge, you need to know how much does this cost. There are very, very few large-scale CCS projects, so we don't know what it costs. When we talk about what it will cost, we're talking about what cost you get to after you've built a ton of plants. So the reason why we don't have a, a solid, like, yes, CCS is the answer right now for you is because we need a lot of people to take the leap. Every CCS project is different. It's not like churning out hundreds and thousands of gigawatts of, of solar panels from China. It's very bespoke, and we need a lot of people to jump over the chasm before they can tell us how to build a bridge back. Consider me interested once again. Thanks for coming in, guys. Yeah, my pleasure. <laughs> no problem. Glad to hear it. Bloomberg NEF is a service provided by Bloomberg Finance LP and its affiliates. This recording does not constitute, nor should it be construed as, investment advice, investment recommendations, or a recommendation as to an investment or other strategy. Bloomberg NEF should not be considered as information sufficient upon which to base an investment decision. Neither Bloomberg Finance LP nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this recording, and any liability as a result of this recording is expressly disclaimed. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.